0: Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again to share uh, our thoughts and concerns through Holy Scripture. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to really hear what you have to say to us through Scripture. And in particularly these particular chapters, uh, help us to take them personally. Because that is the way they're intended. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Uh, today we're going to, well, you know, we're, we're sort of in the, the home stretch, you might say. Uh, we have one more class after today. And I think uh, if you kind of look back over particularly Paul's letter to the Romans, uh chapters 12 uh, through 15, or the first part of 15, seem to be like Paul's running out of steam, and he's tired, you might say. And these chapters really don't need a great deal of explanation. I mean, they're fairly clear in themselves. So what we're going to do is to go through them, but instead of you looking at or listening to them, as if Paul is talking to the churches of Rome, what I'd like you to do is to think about it as Paul talking to you personally. Because these uh, recommendations or these instructions, exhortations, whatever you wish to call them, uh, in these chapters here, are really intended for the individual to take personally what he is saying. And it's easy to read them over and think, oh yeah, those are nice words, and just kind of gloss over them and go on. But that's not what they're intended to do. They're really intended to be an examination of conscience, which you should always do before you go to confession, Regardless of whether you have any serious sin or not, go over your whole life to see what your relationship with Christ really is, or what your relationship with God is. And these exhortations in, uh, Paul's letter here is intended to do that very thing. It's to, intended to wake up people, uh, and they're just as applicable today as they were uh, 2,000 years ago. In fact, even more so, in a way. Because we have so many distractions now that sidetrack us from really thinking about uh, Christ and measuring up uh, what we are about to do, our decisions, our plans, our hopes and dreams, and so forth, with What is Christ really asking of us? What does God want of us personally? And are we filling it? Are we even uh, attempting to fill it? Do we even talk or pray about what God wants of us? I dare say that many people don't even give it the slightest thought. And that's unfortunate because, as Paul tells us in several places throughout his letters, if you believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. But that implies that you not only believe, but you take it into your heart, not just the mind, but the heart, and then move on through your life and reflect your belief in your life, your actions and your speech. Then that's what saves you. Not just the mere fact of believing. We can all believe, you know. I believe in George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Not the current... Uh, I won't go there Uh, but that doesn't mean that I understand all that Washington or Lincoln uh, represented or preached or talked about or whatever but it's different because your life depends your your eternal life your spiritual life really depends on what you believe and how you live that and express it through your speech and actions. Let me digress just a little bit. As you know, last week we had a young lady who moved from California to Oregon where they have assisted living. And if you read that story, it was sad. What did I say? Oh, well, you know how it is when you get old, you know. I have that on my brain, I guess. I might need that after today. (laughs) Well, suicide, of course, yeah. And it's sad because, you know, the explanation And you had, there were several different articles written on the same subject. And the, one of the explanations was, well, your body is your own to do with as you please. That's not true. You didn't give yourself life. Therefore, you cannot take your life. It is not yours to deal with as you wish exclusively. It is a vehicle in order to serve God. And that's the way you should look at it. And this poor lady. It's a fairly young lady, if I recall. Uh, you know, just gave up. She didn't want to deal with the pain. And we can all understand that. But pain has a meaning. A purpose. In our life. No one suffered more pain than Jesus Christ on the cross. And we can't excuse that or put that aside because he was God. He was also a human being. So pain has a purpose. We may not always understand it. There are so many explanations that they kind of cross each other out. Uh, and there is no real clear one Explanation fits all. But pain is and has a purpose. So we cannot take our life into our own hands and say, it is mine to do with what I please. Because it isn't. Now, well, getting back to believing in Jesus Christ and fulfilling what he has asked of us through our speech and our actions is probably the most important thing that you can do. And so I challenge each and every one of you to spend some time thinking about that and taking it seriously so that you come to some conclusion as to where do you stand today in your relationship to God? And then, I think the freedom that Paul talks about, particularly in Galatians more so than in Romans, but the freedom that he talks about will finally soak into your mind and your heart. I have, and I don't like to talk about myself, but sometimes it's the only first-hand knowledge that I can give is that I was extremely busy and active with a family, had a very responsible job and all of that. And for many years, I didn't give it the serious thought that I do now and should have. And I was always tied up with stress and always had so many things on my mind and was always concerned about was I going to accomplish all that I wanted to accomplish and all that I was required to accomplish. It wasn't until one day when I was walking sort of just in the evening, because I was cooped up in an office so much that I would go for a walk at night just to get out and get some fresh air and and a change of scenery and so forth, And I was thinking about love, and I don't recall why I was thinking about love, human love. And I think, well, I don't remember exactly why, but I remember saying to God, I guess in general, Lord, I wish I could be loved in that way. And it was like he came right immediately and said, I've always been here to love you but you haven't opened your mind and heart to me. I thought, wow. What an answer. But as I, you know, I actually got weak in the knees, so to speak, because that was the first time I really remember God speaking to me directly. Not with my ears, but with my heart. And I spent some time afterwards thinking about that. And as I began to open my mind and my heart, a lot of the tension that I was experiencing sort of faded away because I put things in order. And I experienced the freedom that Paul was talking about. When you put God first in your life, That doesn't mean that everything is going to go away. That doesn't mean the problems are going to go away or that the activities that you are required to accomplish aren't going to go away. But they take a different priority. They take a different stand in your life and you can begin to handle them so much easier. When we hear or learn or read... Where Christ is supposed to be put first in your life, and I've had people say right to my face, well, my parent or my parents or my family or my children, my spouse comes first. Uh Uh-uh, it shouldn't. Christ should be first. God in the person of Jesus Christ should be first in your life. And then, He will help you make Your family, your job, or your children, or whatever—all take its proper place. But by keeping him first, you experience the freedom to handle all of those other things in the proper way, and the stress will fade away. I guarantee it. Like the guy from, you know, Men's Warehouse. I guarantee you. So, any questions on that before we get into the subject of the day? Jet? That... No, I'm, just uh, the I the because as Christians believe what you were saying.
1: His question to his audience was, but why should a few beliefs control all of us? And I guess he was saying that then these people like believers in Christianity. Why should our beliefs affect what this lady wanted to do? do I put that forth? Um. They're saying, I think, what they're saying is we believe in our bodies belong to Christ. time. These other people don't. So why should they be controlled by what we believe, which is, the in
0: Well, yeah, I can understand what you're saying. Uh, Chad's question is that the narrator of the program asked a rhetorical question really is why should the beliefs of some people affect everybody and my point is that we are not talking about my beliefs should affect you but my beliefs should affect what I do to you or through you or for you in the spirit of love then if the spirit of love is that the base, the spirit of love of God, is at the base of all that you do, then that becomes infectious. Other people will see that. And that is the hope. No, you cannot legislate uh, goodwill. You cannot legislate love and all of that. It has to be something that a person, because of their experience of God first, And if you get out that little diagram that I gave you a few weeks ago, you'll see that your love of other people and of God must stem from your experience of God in the first place. And then it grows within you as you accept the concept of love of God and love of neighbor. And then through your actions and your speech, you will then spread that out. And Paul, that's what Paul is really talking about. We cannot say that because I believe this way, you have to believe that way. No. I'm saying that this woman that uh, went to Oregon to commit suicide, or receive assisted suicide, whatever you call it, had no faith, obviously. And chose to believe that she had the right to do what she wanted with her own body, and that's unfortunate, but it stems from the fact not that she didn't obey somebody else's laws, but that she had no faith and belief in God herself and that is right at the
1: basis of it yes I think that. This is my opinion. I think that we have the right to impose our opinions on other people because we as Christians believe it's the truth. And because it's the truth, therefore it should be applicable to all people, even if they're not believers. It's like you not you may not believe them gravity caused that apple to fall from the tree, but it did, whether or not you believe in gravity or not. And I mean I think that's why we as believers believe we have the truth and we should impose that truth with love on no. non believers.
0: No, you cannot impose it.
1: Well I mean
0: you can't
1: make them believe it. Well no. you can you can
0: That's right. You can let them know what you believe and show it through your actions and your speech, but you cannot require them to believe the same way. But
1: I mean, the fact that not every state in the Union has a system purified...
0: Thank God they don't.
1: Yeah, I mean, shows that not everybody shares her belief, and that a lot of California would improve you know, impose the truth that we believe people have the right to make sure that. But so she moved outside of California in order to
0: to do that. hmm Yeah. But she so, took she took the life that belongs to God into her own hands mm-hmm. and destroyed it. And that is absolutely wrong according to our beliefs. Excuse me, Steve? Well, we are entitled to our beliefs, but we're not entitled to our own set of facts. The facts are the facts of truth. we have to not When we elect some individuals, we are telling them when you can't register tomorrow. Really? They've really? been doing it for a thousand years. That's all the it is. It's our first year that's the gift of the community to stay in the world. It doesn't mean to be. Unfortunately. Yes, but unfortunately uh, you get what you vote for. Yeah. And it hasn't always turned out well, yeah. as we know. Uh, We have to move on. Let's get to chapter 12. There are some very beautiful passages here that I would like to get into. But again, it's important that you look at these as if, look at these passages or listening to them, whatever, as if he is talking directly to you on a personal basis. Forget the ideas of he is writing to people that he doesn't even know. He's writing to Romans and so forth. Uh, that's not important. Right now it's important that you look at these in a personal way. Okay. He opens with a rather an, a interesting a short a salutation here. It says, I may urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Now, offer your bodies. That's really right to the point that we've been talking about here. Uh, again, it's an offering of the action and the capabilities of the body. St. Peter uh, gives us the same, almost the same words in uh one of his letters, First of 2 Peter, I think it's actually Second Peter, uh, about offering our bodies as sort of living stones to build the edifice of the church, meaning the body of Christ. Okay. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and pleasing and perfect, and how well that really should come across to you on a personal basis. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than one ought to think, but to think soberly, each according to the measure of faith that God has apportioned means we have all given different gifts. We have been given different talents. We have been given different measures of faith. And therefore, within our own mind and heart, again, we cannot legislate, we cannot uh, make laws for all moral situations. Okay. For as in one body, we have many parts And all the parts do not have the same function. He is repeating a lot of what is in 1 Corinthians. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. In other words, that is why we call God Father. Because if we accept God as our Father, then all of his children have some relationship to each other. And therefore, all Christians are truly brothers and sisters in Christ.
1: Excuse me. I'm sorry,
0: I lost my place here. Since we have gifts that differ according uh, to the grace given to us, let us exercise them. If prophecy, in other words, if we have the gift of prophecy in proportion to the faith, if ministries in ministering. If one is a teacher in teaching, in other words, we have to use those gifts that God has given to us for the mutual benefit of all. If one exhorts in exhortations, if one contributes in generosity, and if one is over others with diligence, if one does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, all of these could be combined And say, whatever you do, do it in the spirit of spiritual love. Okay. And that, of course, again, if you get your diagram out and take a look at it. I don't have my copy here, I don't think. uh, But it's important in a way that, yes, I do. I'm rarely without it. Anybody not have a copy of this? All right, take a look at it if you have it now, and I hope you do. We cannot be true lovers of humanity unless we have some experience of God. Because the love that God created us with is what binds us together and makes us children of God. And therefore, our knowledge or our experience of God must come first. And if it does not, then we are not truly loving. But when we do experience that... (coughs) and wish to put it into action as we should then it takes the form of the larger circle here and when I say and talk about love I do not necessarily mean affection it is difficult sometimes to be affectionate uh, to people who irritate us and that is, that is part of our human makeup But nevertheless, whether they irritate us for whatever reason, we must show them respect, compassion, forgiveness, integrity, or whatever. It's important that we understand when we read these uh, letters of Paul, that we understand what he is talking about as love. All right? Uh, again affection and sex can be a part of true love but it is not generally the main part in the way we are uh, referring to it here okay. but love has many many components and we're talking about agape love uh, by the way some people have corrected me in the pronunciation uh it is true that if you are pronouncing it in the Greek form, it's agape. But most people in the English form say agape. It is easier. But in most European languages, if there are three syllables in a major word, the accent is always on the first syllable, which would be agape. Uh, that's just a little aside, because I've had a few people come up and correct me uh, when I say agape. Okay? Most people will read it that way in English. Right? But I think this is important, um, and that is why I've developed this little diagram here that you'll keep that in mind. All right, let's move on. Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Anticipate uh, one another in showing honor. Do not grow slack in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in affliction. Persevere in prayer. That is most important. All of what we've talked about for ten weeks for almost 10 weeks, will do you no good if you do not take it into prayer. Prayer is the medium by which you and God get to know each other. Sometimes he'll rap on your head like he did me and that walk that night, but uh, nevertheless, prayer is the medium by which you and God get to know each other. Do not grow slack in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Um, Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in affliction. See? Endure in affliction, which means physical pain. We don't always understand why we have pain, but nevertheless, there is a reason for it. And if we unite Our pain with that of Christ on the cross. It becomes more bearable. Um, Contribute to the needs of the holy ones. Exercise hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. And bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Well, that is often very difficult for us. And we have to understand um, that Our love, in the uh, agape sense, must show through. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Have the same regard for one another. Uh, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, humility is an important part of... Love. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be concerned for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible on your part, live at peace with all. Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. I'm reading that backwards because that's the way it is in uh, another a uh, prayer book that I use. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Now that might sound like uh, a very sad thing, and Paul's not telling you to go out and, you know, fire up some charcoal or whatever, so you can dump it on somebody's head. <laughs> it's a figure of speech. It's an exaggeration. Of what he means by showing love and respect even to your enemies. It is by your actions that you would like to get them to see what they should have done. What they should be doing as well. Alright. That's what he's really talking about. And, And do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Chapter 13 is rather an interesting one here. And it's really all about uh, the law and love in itself. Okay. Let everyone be subordinate to the higher authorities. And he's talking about lawful authority. Uh, there is a distinction here. For there is no authority except from God. Remember in you hear this at uh, on Good Friday when Christ is standing before Pilate and Pilate asks him some incidental question and Jesus remains silent and Pilate doesn't like this and he says you mean You refuse to talk to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you or to free you? And Jesus looks at him right in the eye and he says, you would have no power if it was not given to you by God my Father. And of course, that puts Pilate right, you know, gets him right between the eyes, so to speak. Um... And that's what Paul is saying right here. Lawful authority is necessary for mankind to have structure. And therefore, we have a right and a duty to obey lawful authority. One time I was stopped by a policeman, you know, flashing lights and all of that simply because I made a turn, a right turn, on a red light, and I didn't stop all the way, and I sort of slowed down and then went on. I didn't get a ticket, but I got a warning, and that was good enough, because I pay attention now. Uh, Not only because it's the law that you must stop before you make a right-hand turn on a red light, But it's a safety factor. How often do you start to do that and then somebody comes whizzing by right in front of you? So it's a safety factor. There are reasons for our laws. And therefore, to disobey a lawful law is wrong. Now, you can't get scrupulous about it, so...
1: Yes.
0: If the law is in accordance with God's law, well, that's why I, what I mean when I say lawful laws, yeah, uh, laws that are, yes, because lawful authority really implies that these are something that are for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, you're right. Therefore, whoever resists authority, and again, we're talking about lawful authority, opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear uh, to good conduct, but to evil. Do you wish to have no fear of authority? That's Some people do have no fear whatsoever. Then do what is good, and what uh, you will receive approval from it. For if the servant of God, I'm sorry, for it is a servant of God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword without purpose. It is the servant of God to inflict wrath on the evildoers but not us. It is, again, lawful authority to go after evildoers. Therefore, it is necessary to be subject not only because of the wrath, but also because of conscience. And this is why you also pay taxes. We all hate to see March 15th or April 15th come around uh, because we know. But how would the government exist? Now, we have to leave uh, aside how they use our money and how they use our taxes. Uh, but the fact of paying taxes is required. The same way with supporting the church. After the sex scandal uh, that erupted five or six years ago, the income of most parishes just took a major nosedive because people felt that every parish was guilty and every priest was guilty and therefore they were not going to support them. And that's rather foolish because it was a small number of priests in comparison to the total number of priests that were involved and a small number of bishops and they were totally misguided. Uh, revenue has increased. And come back to something. Uh, more manageable. But it still is. Uh, really just barely getting us by. Now. This next section here. With verse 8. Is probably the most important. Of. Uh, these uh, particular chapters. And it is probably what got Paul into most of his problem. Okay? Because up till now, and we haven't talked about this as much as we should have, but can you see why Christianity and Judaism could never get along, could never... Merge into each other. They are so different. Uh, although. Christianity was born out of. Judaism. And that was God's plan. Unfortunately. It was really Judaism. That took a left turn. You might say. From what God wanted. And. Never has really. Rightened itself back into the overall plan of salvation. But this particular section here is what kind of sealed Paul's fate, you might say. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no evil to the neighbor. Hence, love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, any ultra-conservative Jew would take that as an offense, a major offense, because they worship the law. Now, we're talking about Mosaic law. Okay, not, They don't worship rules of the road and that kind of thing. But they're talking about the Mosaic law, the 613 uh, parts of the Mosaic law is what they are worshipping. And they feel that by worshiping the law, they are pleasing God. But they don't find out whether that is what God wants of them or not. They don't take God into consideration. They're just saying, here it is, God. Take it or leave it. I don't like to be so crass about it, but that's, you know, really, in essence, the way they're presenting it. And Unfortunately, we have laws, we have rules, we have structure. But if it is not for the greater honor and glory of God, then it is of no value. If our belief stops at our own front door and doesn't go any further, it is of no value. God is not going to force us into doing anything. And that is what is really the problem with many people in their lives. They have no structure because they have no belief. But these, this particular sen- sentence here, uh, chapter 13, verse 8 through 10.
1: Did Paul in? So Paul was done in by the Romans,
0: not the Jews. No. Paul was done in by the Jews first. Not the Romans. Because with this and with his other teachings, obviously, he welcomed Gentiles into Christianity wholeheartedly. That was his major objective. All right. And they tried to remain faithful Jews for a while. But they saw that it didn't work. And eventually, through the teachings of Peter, he began to do the same thing. Loosen up on the beliefs and the tying of their activities To the Mosaic Law. And that is what caused the persecutions. Because by bringing the Gentiles into the synagogues, it was defiling the synagogue. Or by bringing Christian or Jews who converted to Christianity into the synagogue was defiling the synagogue according to their beliefs. And they were then expelled. And after a while, even the people in Jerusalem who became Christians began to lose their jobs. People would not uh, deal with them in financial matters. Uh, storekeepers would not serve them. So the persecution started with the Jews. And it wasn't until it got to uh, a case of uh, harming them, you know, actually putting them to death and so forth, did the Romans come in. And the War of the Romans began in June of the year 66 AD and lasted until December of the year 70 it was primarily to quell or quash the problems between the Jews and the Christians. Unfortunately, the Romans only made it worse. And so they destroyed both the city and the temple. But that was part of God's plan as well. Because God had given the Jewish people 40 years from the time of Christ's death and resurrection, 40 years till 70 AD, to change their minds, to get the light, or see the light, I should say. And they didn't. And so, what he did was allow the Romans to come in and destroy Jerusalem and the temple which was the symbol of God's presence among the Jewish people because as we know in the last supper Christ in instituting the the Eucharist said by raising the cup, the bread and the cup which he then consecrated into his own body and blood and said this is the chalice of the new covenant New and eternal covenant. So that covenant. Ran you might say. Parallel. To the old covenant. Up until 70 AD. And when the people. Did not. Take notice. And change their ways. And become beliefs. Then the destruction. Of the temple. Was the. Proof. Proof of God's withdrawing the first covenant because he was no longer represented by the temple in their minds and the proof of that is that the temple was never allowed
1: to be rebuilt yes By the Jews, the Jews were the ones that were against Christ, and they used the Romans because they couldn't put Christ to death. Right. And did they do something similarly with Paul that because the Jews were upset with Paul, that
0: they used the Romans to. Yes. And yes, very much so. If you read the last several chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, You'll see why Paul got to Rome in the first place. You remember, he was going to go to Rome on his way to Spain, but he had to go to Jerusalem first because he had collected money from various sources to take down to these people in Jerusalem who were starving because they wouldn't, they lost their jobs and, you know, as I said earlier. uh, while he was there, the Jews uh, arrested him and put him in jail and were going to execute him, and I'm kind of hurrying this up a little bit, and he appealed to Rome. He appealed directly to uh Festus who was the successor to Pilate, all right? And then there was another guy in between, I think. Um And that is how he got to Rome, because he was also a Roman citizen, and the Jews could not put a Roman citizen to death. So, yes, you're right. The manipulation of the Jewish people is to execute or crucify Christ was now sort of reversed, you might say, by the Romans coming in and destroying the temple, and the city in 70 AD. It was all sort of a tip or chat type of thing. Yeah. Uh, I think when you pull all of this together, and here's something I would really recommend to all of you, is to go through and read all of Paul's letters as well as the Acts of the Apostles. You might start with the Acts of the Apostles, and then read Paul's letter uh, letters uh, because it's really a very interesting exercise when you see how it all fits together and read them in the order I gave you a, a little schedule of uh, the order in which they were written and you'll see how even Paul changes. He starts out rather brash and bold uh, almost arrogant you might say but ends up very meek and mild and loving. So it's very interesting to see the change. And I know the letters aren't that uh, interesting uh, or easy to read, but I think as you get accustomed to it, you will see that they are easier and more understandable, and you'll really begin to to like Paul. uh. I have found over the years that every time I teach these subjects, I become a little more sensitive to Paul, uh, than I started out years ago. In fact, the first time, the first few years that I was teaching, I avoided teaching Paul altogether. Uh, because frankly, I didn't like what I was listening to. But when you hear them in church, you know, it, it sounds pretty darn cold. Uh but it is isn't. he's a human being with a great deal of sensitivity and you've got to keep in mind that all that he is teaching in all of his letters came directly from God himself not from anyone else and he makes a very pointed assurance of that in Galatians yes for 1500 years yes um, it's like a wake-up call. That's what it really is. A wake-up call. We have become very complacent. You know, we go to church on Sunday, we think we're good kids, uh, and that's about it. We don't do anything, you know, we haven't murdered anybody lately. Uh, <laughs> I have to tell you a little side here. When Father McDonald was here, He was so easygoing. He was such a simple, uh, holy man. And to indicate how holy he was, we would say, if you went to confession to him and said, well, bless me, Father, I'm sorry, but I have to confess that I murdered my wife last night. He would say, oh, that's a real serious sin, but you must have had a good reason for it. (laughs) This book is a wake-up call. All right? And like I said, you got two strings attached. You have to read it, and then you have to pass it on to somebody else. Okay? Let's go on. Awareness of the end time. And do this because you know the time. It is the hour now for you to wake from sleep. For your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let them throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Now that might sound, yeah, so, oh, that's nice nice sounding words, but gee, it doesn't apply to me, you know. It does. It applies to everybody because it is so easy, as I said, to become complacent. And oh, you're warm and you're comfortable in the way you express your uh Christianity, your Catholicity, all right? Uh, You're comfortable with the way it is, but is that the way God wants you to do it? So, by reading this book, hopefully you will wake up to uh, things that you've never thought about. It goes in, there's a whole chapter on confession, and I think that it is extremely important because confession is something that is diminished in our churches uh to the point where people don't go to confession uh, simply because, oh, they think they're good people and they don't have to. Confession is like going to a doctor. You should go on a regular basis and tell the doctor or tell the priest everything that is going on in your spiritual life for the priest and your physical life for the doctor. But you don't go to a doctor and then hold half of the... So your problem's back, do you? I mean, that wouldn't do you any good. And it certainly doesn't do the doctor any good because he's not a mind reader. Alright. Well, that is, that's another thing. Okay, alright. Now, these words in Paul's letter can be looked upon in a couple different ways. The way he really intends it is spiritually. All right. Wake up spiritually for the time is short. Okay. For your salvation is near now. Your salvation starts on the day that you make a decision to do what God wants of you. That's when your salvation starts. Up until that time, you've been lost. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is, wake up and find out what God really wants of you. There's another way of looking at this too. At Paul's time of writing this, it was the common belief of Paul in the beginning, but not towards the end, but in the beginning, it was the very common belief that the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, was going to happen in their lifetime. And therefore, uh, in Thessalonians, he's really addressing that issue when he says there's a lot of people who just stop working uh, because they figure, well, if the world's going to end here... and..." In a couple of years, why bother going through and, and trying to work and advance and get a you know, job and save money and uh, build a house and all of that, uh, because it's all going to be destroyed. Okay? And he says, uh-uh. He finally woke up by the time Thessalonians was written, okay? So he says, no. For those people who don't work, they shouldn't eat. And as you know, eating, and we'll see this in a few minutes, uh, was a very big part of their life. Okay. Well, yes, but unfortunately for some people it's too much uh, a main part of their life. Okay. Chapter 14 is kind of interesting in a way. Um, To live and die for Christ. Right? That sounds uh, rather ominous in a way. Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but not for disputes over opinions. One person believes that one may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. (laughs) I don't know, it takes a pretty strong person to live only on vegetables, I'll tell you. Um, The one who eats must not despise the one who abstains. And the one who abstains must not pass judgment on the one who eats. You know, well that sounds rather simple. But if you recall, in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul and Peter get into rather a heated argument over this real same subject. it is not so much the eating in itself. It is how you do it in front of other people. I remember uh years ago when I was uh, working and representing the bank, I had a business meeting in San Francisco. And it was one of the high Jewish holy days. I don't remember which one offhand. That in itself is not important. And my host. I was with another person who invited me to lunch and he was a conservative Jew. And he made sure that whatever he ate did not have certain ingredients in it. And apparently the um, restaurant where we were at catered to many Jewish people and they were well aware of it and the waiter was uh, right on his toes, and was able to explain that the ingredients and so forth were all in accordance with the kosher custom. And I respected that man, and I was made sure that what I ordered was not offensive to him for that particular day. In other words, you wouldn't order, say, a Reuben sandwich with meat and cheese on the sandwich because that would be wrong. Alright, so you have to kind of be uh, mindful of those things solely out of politeness. That's kind of what he's talking about here. <clears throat> Who are you to pass judgment on someone else's servants or conduct? Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be held uh, upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For one person considers one day more important than another, while another person considers all days alike. Let everyone be fully persuaded in his mind, for whoever observes the day observes it for the Lord, and also whoever eats, eats for the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while whoever abstains, abstains for the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives for oneself, and no one dies for oneself. Well, except young ladies that go to Oregon. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's a pretty strong statement. But you know, it's actually comforting for somebody who has opened their minds and their hearts to doing what God wants them to do. And then you don't feel isolated. You feel part of, uh, or you feel like you belong to somebody. And you belong to Christ. And that's the way it should be. For this is why Christ died and came to life that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And that statement right there gives a lot of comfort to people who have lost loved ones thinking that they will never see them again. And of course I had that personal experience myself not too long ago. Uh, And my feeling is that I will see them, because remember, we believe, uh, in the community of saints, and all saints have something in common. They are
1: in,
0: they are before the face of God, always. And remember, everyone in heaven is a saint. A lot of people say, oh, you mean my Aunt Minnie is a saint? Well, if she is in heaven, she's a saint. Now, you can't call her Saint Aunt Minnie, uh, but nevertheless, the church doesn't put her on their calendar, uh, but nevertheless, everyone in heaven is a saint. Yes, Howard? You bet. Yes. That is the community of saints. Yes. Triumph. Church militant is those here on earth. The church suffering are those who are in purgatory. But the community of saints means that we are all related and someday we will all be together. Okay. Yes. Why then do you judge your brothers? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. And for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bend before me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. And that's kind of frightening in a way, isn't it not? If we stood before God and everyone else in the last judgment and have to give an account of ourselves, the good and the bad, hopefully the good will outweigh the bad and we will be welcomed into the eternal house of God. But be careful. There's nothing that is going to guarantee that while we're here on earth. But we know if we are in the good graces of God through our relationship with him that we have nothing to fear. For God is always welcoming people back into the fold provided that they are sincere in their efforts and that they try sincerely to not sin again. Consider for... Consideration for the weak conscience. Then let no longer judge one another, but rather resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother. I know that I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Again, this goes back to Paul's relationship with Peter and it's explained in detail in the first part of the Acts of the Apostles. That nothing that God has made. Is unclean. And that again. Is a big no-no in the Jewish faith. They have so many things. That are unclean. Uh, and we all know of course the idea. Of, of pork being. Uh, something that. The conservative Jewish people will not. I should say the orthodox Jewish people. Uh, would not even thinking think of eating because it is considered unclean. That was not a law that God made. That was a law that came out of Moses as with part of the hygiene laws. Because in the early days and up until the last maybe 50 years, pork was in danger of giving people trichinosis and therefore it was something that had to be uh, considered and uh, you had to guard against and that was part of the Jewish law uh, for hygiene purposes but not for worship service however over a period of time it worked itself into part of the Jewish laws and the Jewish worship concept. Yeah. And that goes for a lot of other things. So the idea of not, uh, the prohibition against uh, eating the blood of animals. You know, there's uh, blood sausage and blood soup and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the Jewish people cannot eat that according to their rules. Uh, and that, again, was part of hygiene because Blood is the medium by which a lot of um, human illnesses are transmitted. If your brother is being hurt by what you eat, your conduct is no longer in accord with love. Do not, because of your food, destroy him for whom Christ loved. So do not let your good be reviled. Uh, we'll go back to that sentence. Do not um, because of your food destroy him for whom Christ died. Uh, that is another statement used by people who are against capital punishment. Uh it has nothing to do with food, but the idea of capital punishment is pro is forbidden by the Catholic Church now wasn't always uh, because it is felt that you did not give life to the individual and therefore you cannot take life from an individual because you have no idea if, when, or will that person repent. And what you're doing by taking his or her life is that you are taking the opportunity for that person to repent uh, and come back into the good graces of God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by others. Let us then pursue what leads to peace and to building up one another. For the sake of food, do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to become a stumbling block by eating or by food or by these television programs that recommend food, food, food. In fact, I guess there's even one called the Foodie uh, television something or other here. Keep the faith that you have to yourself in the presence of God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. That's, I put a big question mark here because I've tried to figure out what this sentence means and I am at a loss myself. So I'm sure that many of you are also. But whoever has doubts is is condemned if he eats because this is not from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, I tell you, I went through many prayers and many attempts to find out what that means, and I have not come up with a good answer. So, you know, we just have to move on. The last half, we have, I mean, the first half of, uh, of part of 15, Patience and self denial We who are strong ought to put up with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is weak in faith now, not physical weakness. Let each of us please our neighbor for the good, for building up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. For whatever was written previously was written for our instruction. That by endurance and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That is, all of the Old Testament was written as instruction, not necessarily for um, devotion. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to think in harmony with one another. In keeping with Christ. That with one accord, accord. You may with one voice. Glorify the God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's fidelity and mercy. Welcome one another then. As Christ welcomed you. For the glory of God. For I say that. Christ became a minister. Of the circumcised. To show God's truthfulness. To conform with the the promises to the patriarchs, but so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all of the peoples praise you. All of those are quotations out of the Old Testament scriptures, primarily the prophets. But as you know, the Jewish people did not look back on their own scriptures uh, as a way of improving the future, their future. Unfortunately, they totally ignored those where the prophets uh, admonished the Jewish people for lack of faith. And, as you know, they put all the prophets to death because they didn't like what they had to say. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, raised up to rule the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse is often referred, Jesse was the father of David, King David. David was given a promise by God himself. That there would always be somebody from the house of David, that is a descendant of David, on the throne of uh, the kingdom of Judah, that is the southern uh, kingdom of Israel. And of course, Christ represents that as somebody living forever as the king. But unfortunately, the Jewish people don't recognize that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, even though, as I said in my opening statement, that these chapters need very little uh, explanation because they're somewhat clear, somewhat the thing is, we have to open our minds and hearts to what is being said here and take it personally to see if we are conforming. Because that is what this little book is all about. Reawakening our belief, our allegiance to Christ. And we need that every so often because like everything else we can become very complacent in how we approach and fulfill our religious uh, obligations. And the first thing that you have to do is to see where do you stand in relation to Christ? What is, um your your level of, of allegiance, your interest, uh, and how does your actions and your speech reflect that? And that is where you begin. Any questions? All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask you to help us to now to open our minds and our hearts to really see where we are, where we stand with you. So give us the strength and the courage then to be honest with ourself and with you. And if we have not done things as you want us to, to write that immediately. Again, give us the strength and the courage and may your Holy Spirit always be with us to guide us in all that we do, say, think, want, etc. So we ask your blessing on us and our efforts as we go forth,
1: trying to develop a stronger relationship with you. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.